This is Scott Archer, pastor of Central Congregational Church in La Mesa, California. Thank you so much for tuning into our Sunday service podcast, CCC Sunday Messages. I hope you find the messages both challenging and encouraging as you seek to know and follow Jesus in your daily life. If you live in or ever happen to visit the San Diego area, we would love to have you join us for worship and fellowship. For location, service times, and other information about our church, please visit our website at cccLamesa.com. CCC is a small but passionate intergenerational church working together for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors near and far. Well, I hope you found the book of Judges in your Bible, and I hope that maybe some of you have taken some time to begin to read through it. Um, And if you have, and especially if you've never read it before, I'll bet some of you already have some questions and concerns. And if you do, you can email those to uh, Reverend Tom uh, (laughs) at tom at cccLamesa.com. He'd be happy to answer all your questions. Sorry about that, Tom. Um, No, but uh, we're going to get into this uh, series that I've entitled Compromise, Chaos, and Covenant. And last week, we started, sort of started the series by looking at the last chapter of Joshua and rehearsing everything, that how God had developed the people of Israel through Abraham and how he had brought them right up to the promised land um, and how Joshua, just before he died, helped them gain a foothold in the land of Canaan, of part of which is modern-day Israel or, or what modern-day Israel is part of. Um, and then uh, Joshua has died, and they are getting ready to go as tribes and take possession of the rest of the land as God leads them. And so we're going to get into that. Uh, I need to let you know right ahead, uh, right off the bat, there is so much in this book. We could easily spend another year in it like we did in Mark or even longer. There are uh, just all sorts of uh, intriguing, helpful things, but we're not going to do that. We're going to go through it a little more. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to pick our spots, as it were. And so I apologize ahead of time if there's an area where you got interested in and I didn't cover it as much as you'd like. Um, but again, if you reach out to me, I'd be happy to lead you to some resources and to some other speakers and teachers that might get into the area that you're interested in. But as we approach um, the message this morning, which is entitled "The Promise," excuse me, "Possessing the Promise," Part One: A Good Beginning. Um, maybe that should be sort of a fair beginning, uh, a so-so beginning. But possessing the promise, Part One. Um, the idea is, is that the people of Israel have come to the land, the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham that he would give his people, um, and they've come to it again after having to wander around 40 years in the desert because the original people that got there were too afraid to enter in. They were too afraid of the inhabitants, and they didn't, the current inhabitants, the Canaanites, and they didn't trust God. And now there's a new generation under Joshua, and they have gone in and they've created a foothold. Joshua has died, but this, the, the uh, purposes of God far outlast any, any specific uh, leader within the church, within the people of God, and they are supposed to go in and take possession of the land. That's God's promise. This is the place where the people of God are supposed to thrive, not just for their own benefit, but to be a blessing to the whole world, to show the whole world this is what it looks like when our hearts are turned to God. And this is what God looks like. He's a good God. He's a great God. He's not like your uh, pagan gods that require child sacrifice and all this other stuff. 
This is, this is the promise of God. They're right there. And we need to know for ourselves today that God is still in the business of leading his people toward the full and final promised land of his, the consummation of his kingdom, which is summed up in the book of Revelation chapter 21 when Jesus says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. God is at work in this world, and that work is taking place in and through his people. And so when we read about the people of Israel and the challenges they face, we need to see it not as our country. This isn't about America. This isn't about any other country, current country on the planet. This is about the people of God. And, um, and there is a good, God is leading us into his purposes and his promises. Um, and we need to have the courage and the faith to enter, to enter in. But as we think about this, we have to answer a fundamental question in our lives, individually and corporately. And it's a question everybody has to answer in their life, whether they answer it directly or indirectly. And that's the fundamental question of who's in charge of their life. Whose will do they submit to? Do they follow? Who do they place to whom, in whom do they place their ultimate trust, their ultimate allegiance? Is it themselves? Uh, is it God or some form of religion, some God, some higher, some sense of a higher being? Is it a, uh, is it an, is it another leader? Is it a, an, a spouse or, or who? Where is that place of ultimate allegiance? Uh, who, who do I really listen to, um, so that to, to give me guidance and purpose in life? Because the premise of the book of Judges, the premise of the whole Bible, is that we, or excuse me, that God is the God of all creation, and he's created us for himself, and for each other, and for this world, and that our lives will never be what they're supposed to be if we have not come to true faith in him and learn to trust him. And there's constantly a struggle in all of us about either trusting God or trusting myself or trusting God or trusting some political platform or trusting God or this or my money or my whatever. That's a, that's a place that we need to look at and Judges is going to bring us to that place over and over again. And again, the title of the series is Compromise, Chaos, and Covenant. Um, the idea being that, but that because the Israelites of the day and God's people throughout history have struggled to really completely trust him and completely obey him, that there's always been some level of compromise, uh, that, that when we do that eventually leads to chaos. And as I mentioned last week, my daughter said that there should also be another C, carnage, chaos and carnage, um, that if left to, left to ourselves, we would just be destroyed and we would never enter into the promises of God. We would just get caught up in the cycle we will see in judges of, 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 of disobedience, uh, of oppression, of crying out to God, God raising up a judge and saving them, and they say, oh, thank you, God, and then the judge dies, and they just go through the whole cycle again. It's like, it's like generational reincarnation. Um, and yet, it's not just about compromise and, and chaos but it's also, and most importantly, about covenant, about the faithfulness of God, that God is the one that has called forth this people. God is the one that has called you and me to himself. And no matter how much we struggle, he is faithful. And he disciplines us. Sometimes he backs off and lets us go our own way. But when we cry out to him, he draws us to himself, and he is working out his purposes, sometimes in spite of us. <laughs> and we will see that over and over but the call will be to trust God, 
to follow God, to be faithful of God to, to God while we're surrounded by all sorts of temptations to compromise and and all uh, sorts of temptations not to trust him, to believe, oh, I'm, yeah, I know God's good, but man, I, that can't be the way I should go. Or what's going to happen here to let our worries and our fears be the drivers in our lives or our desire for pleasure and comfort to be the desires in our lives. And again, the sort of the guiding theme of the whole book of Judges uh, in Judges 21-25 is in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit not as God had called them to live and guided them. And just before I read the text and we get into this morning's message, I want to say a word about the, about the violence that we are going to encounter in Judges. The books of Joshua and Judges are the most violent books in the Old Testament. And the violence in the Old Testament, and especially violence that seems to be directed by God, is one of the biggest barriers of faith to, to people that aren't believers. They like Jesus, they like the New Testament, but then they, they're told that these go together and they, they can't get over the violence uh, that, is, that uh, we are were, we were going to encounter here. And I'm not going to be able to give you a full answer to that right now. Um, and, and as we go through the various messages, I'm going to try to, to um, help us with that a little bit. But I want to, basically, I just want to be honest about the dilemma that, um, that the true heart of God, what God's character has always been like and how he really is, is clearly revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and ultimately on his cross. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God and that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Throughout, uh, In the past God spoke to us in many ways, through various ways and the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. Um, and, uh, and it says over and over that if you've, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I only say what the Father tells me to say, and I only do what the Father tells me to do. And Jesus is the one who told us to love our enemies. <laughs> Jesus is the one who touched the untouchables. Uh, Jesus the one, is the one that treated everybody, insiders and outsiders, um, Jews and Gentiles, with equality. And then Jesus is the one who ultimately gave his own life up for his enemies and even forgave them on the cross. And that is the fullest expression of the heart of God. So while we encounter this violence in the book of Judges, we need to hold that picture in our minds and have to wrestle with the fact that there's something deeper going on here. One answer might be, and I'll talk about this a little more in some future messages, is the idea of accommodation. That God has been developing his people throughout history, real history, with people where they are, how they are in the in the the milieu of their current surrounding and culture. And he doesn't just invade that and sort of perfect it at the moment to be all that it should be, but there's a, been a progression of a greater and greater awareness of God and how God acts and what his character is like and his people slowly but surely becoming more aware of that and, and trying to become more uh, like that. And we'll never do it in and of ourselves. That will only fully happen when Christ returns. And so there's this idea of accommodation that God works in and through fallen people in the context of their current setting. So that's the first thing I would say about the violence um, that's there. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a little bit later in this message. Um, but again, 
the fullest revelation of the heart of God is in Jesus Christ, who taught us to love our enemies and gave himself up for us. So please keep that in mind uh, as we go through this. So let's read the text um, this morning, and then we'll uh, say a few things about it. We're going to start in Judges chapter 1, and... um, I'm, uh, I'm only going to read about to Judges chapter 7, even though we're going to be dealing uh, with the stories all the way through uh, Judges chapter 26. But for time, it's going to be difficult to read all of that. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you read the whole passage uh, on your own. It says, after the death of Joshua, <clears throat> the leader, the, the, it was Moses and then Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up uh, first for us against the Canaanites? And that's the general name of all the different pagan nations that were occupying the land of Canaan. Who will go for up first against the Canaanites uh, to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Judah shall go up. Uh, excuse me, lost my place. Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, and remember this isn't really the person Judah and the person Simeon. Those were the sons of Jacob, of the, the tribes of Jacob were made up from those sons, but they are called by the name of their, their original father, their, their progenitor there. So um, the tribe of Judah said to the tribe of Simeon, his brother, their brothers, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek or the Lord of Bezek, uh, one of these pagan nations, Canaanite nations, uh, they found him at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And then the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, now named Hebron. The the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Araba. And they defeated Shimshai and Ahiman and Talmai. And it goes on, and we'll address some of the rest of the passage in a moment. The idea here is Judah, uh, who actually is the becomes the key, the tribe of the Southern Empire. If you know your your uh, Bible history, it's actually the tribe uh, from which Jesus comes from. Uh, they are to go first into the land. They are go to they are go to, they are the ones that are first to go to the to the part of the land that was allotted to them and begin to drive out the nations. And this is obviously a long process. This didn't happen over a weekend. And if you Follow the geography of this. Uh, they are moving from sort of the center where the p- main part of their land is southward uh, in the land of Israel. And uh, God says that they should go first and then they turn to their brother Simeon and say, hey, why don't you go and help us? Here's the central thought. If you're following along, taking notes. <clears throat> We possess the promises and purposes of God for us today. 
as we consistently seek him and his kingdom first and faithfully follow his commands and direction. It's very simple, but super difficult often for us to do. We possess the promises and purposes of God for us today as we consistently seek him and his kingdom first and faithfully follow his commands and direction. The context of the beginning of Judges is after the death of Joshua. This is a time of major transition. And the person that had been their leader is no longer with them. And so they begin to uh, resort to their traditional means within the people of Israel to try to discern the will of the Lord. Uh, and it's probably, if you again, if you know your Old Testament, the priest had an ephod, this thing that he wore over him, and he had these little stones called the Urim and the Thummim, and they would use them like drawing straws, and they would say, Lord, what should we do? Should we do this or that? And they would pull these out, and God would help use those to help guide guide the people, and that's probably what was going on here. But the first thing we notice here is the pri- we're going to look at the priority of divine guidance. We're going to look at the promise of divine provision and presence the problem of disobedience, and then the power of faithful courage. First of all, the priority of divine guidance. They start off really well. They don't just go bursting into land with their swords and cutting people's heads off and just going wherever they want. They stop and they say, Lord, who should go first? Lead us, guide us in how you want us to approach this, the priority of divine guidance. And just if we stopped right there and asked how many things in our lives would have gone better if we'd have sought God first and waited for him to answer us. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, God, which parking spot should I park in? You know, should I choose the the low-fat milk or the whole milk? You know, it doesn't mean that we have to ask. God's given us common sense and wisdom. But in the big things of life, how would life go better? How would we stay out of the chaos and avoid compromise uh, and really sense the blessing and the promise of God if we would just stop and ask and wait and seek good counsel? And along with the priority of divine guidance and and seeking that, we have the promise of divine provision and presence. God answers. He said, Judah shall go forth and I will give the, um, and I will, uh, give the enemies, the, the Canaanites into their hands. So he says, he, he gives them clear direction and he gives them the promise of his provision and presence. Later in the chapter, it says, and I will be with them. God doesn't just say, go, and I'll be here when you get back, but He, when we wait upon him, and especially in important times in our life, these times of transition, when we seek him and we wait upon him, he will give us direction. And again, he doesn't just give us direction, but he supports us in that. He is the one that actually provides for us. He's the one that gives us victory, and he gives us his very self. He goes with us. We know now as followers of Jesus that Jesus told the disciples before he ascended, I'm not going to leave you alone, but when I go, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. We have the very presence of God living within us to guide us day to day in our life so that we can possess the promises and enter into the purposes of God and avoid the chaos and carnage of going our own way and compromising with the world around us. Psalm 105 verse 4 says this, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. So this isn't just something we do at times of crisis. In fact, if we haven't developed a pattern and a habit 
of seeking the Lord on a daily basis, it's going to be much harder for us when all of a sudden the chips are down and, and we, need, we need help in a big way. It doesn't mean God is going to abandon us at that moment, but we haven't had the habit of learning to hear his voice. The psalmist says, seek him in his strength and seek his presence continually or daily. Brothers and sisters, are we doing that in our lives? Luke chapter 11, 9 and 10. Jesus says, I tell you, ask and I'll think about it. Knock and maybe I'll come to the door. Is that what it says? It says, no, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Does that mean that God answers everything? We, does he gives us everything we want? He always does things our way. No, of course it doesn't. It doesn't. But it does mean that when we intentionally and consistently seek God, seeking his purposes and to enter into his promise and purpose, he will answer. He will provide and he will guide. Matthew 6.33 But seek first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God, not our own kingdom, not our own purposes. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things, everything else we need and much of what we desire will be added to you. Brothers and sisters, is that the, the habit of our life? Have we made a priority of seeking divine guidance? And in that, are we counting on and waiting for the promise of divine provision, presence, and trusting that God will lead us? But then we see right away in this the problem of disobedience. The problem of disobedience. If we... Um, <clears throat> See, at verse 3, now you, when uh, Judah says, God says Judah's to go first. And the first thing Judah does is turn to his brother or his fellow tribe, Simeon, and says, hey, if you go with us, we'll go with you. And at first blush, that seems like, okay, great, they're going to do this together. And of course, there's always, there, oftentimes, the right things, we, we need each other. Uh, we are not called to go it alone. But Judah is not an individual, Judah is a tribe. And, um, and God, they asked who should go, and God said, Judah. And Judah said, great, but hey, just in case, Simeon, why don't you go with us? And the fact of the matter is, Judah is a very large tribe, and Simeon was one of the smallest tribes. Judah did not need Simeon from a practical standpoint to help them in their battle against the Canaanites. Judah was sort of their ace in the hole. It was there just in case. And right off the bat, it's a subtle form of not completely trusting God. How often do we do that? How often do we have a sense of God's leading in our life, but then we try to hedge our bets and say, God, hey, I'll obey you, I'll go where you call me to go, but let me just get all my ducks in a row here first. We often do that in our lives. And and so the seeds of disobedience, the seeds of of, um, compromise are planted right up front. And Judah goes, and Simeon goes with them, and God blesses them, and they're able to accomplish what they, uh, what they set out to do, but those seeds are still there. And then we get to verse 22, and, um, and it says, it's talking about now the house of Joseph, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that make up part of the 12 tribes. It says the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph, Joseph scouted out Bethel, uh, now called or a place formerly called Luz, L-U-Z. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. 
Verse 25, And he showed them the way into the city, and they stuck, struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a new city called Luz. That is its name today. And again, at first glance, this looks like, hey, they're being clever. It's their, uh, the, the, the tribes of uh, the Joseph, the house of Joseph, is going into their part of the land, and they're spying it out and saying, okay, how are we going to go about this? And they see one of the people coming out on their own. Basically, they grab this person and say, hey, there's got to be a secret way into this village, not just through the main gate, and if you show us, we'll let you go. It's their own conniving, and at first it seems like, hey, that's brilliant. They get in, they sneak in through the other gate, and they wipe the whole place out, and they establish their presence there. But not so much, because again, this was a pagan nation, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And, it's, and yes, they were able to go in, and they were able to defeat the Canaanites there, and they were able to establish themselves uh, there. But this man and his family went north, and they rebuilt the city and named it the same thing and continued to build the, or to, to participate in the same wicked practices that the Lord was judging them for at that moment. And so again, we see that these little places of compromise, these little places where we don't trust the Lord, they are plant seeds of future chaos and even carnage. It's a lack of trust in God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the very source of life, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken system, cisterns, that can hold no water. We've rejected God as the very source of our lives and tried to do, uh, do it ourselves. And it's and our lives and our solutions are leaky buckets. And it leads to all sorts of chaos. Jeremiah 17.5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So, so brothers and sisters, when we have a clear word from the Lord, Judah shall go first. Um, we're supposed to go take this land. We're supposed to move in this direction. And we know that in our hearts, and then yet we try to sort of connive and manipulate just to, just to make sure God's not going to come through. We're planting, those are, that's disobedience, and we're planting the seeds of chaos and trouble for ourselves and for those around us. Proverbs 16.25 famously says, There is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but in the end it leads to death. And there, there's always this temptation that we have, and, it, and this was, we're going to see this over and over in Judges, because they were surrounded by all these pagan nations that they were supposed to drive out, this temptation to compromise, to, to uh, sort of say, yes, I'm going to follow the Lord, but I'm going to be a part of this too, or I'm going to sort of add God to my collection of, of uh, securities here. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes from the, not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Man, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. Um, those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, hedonism, the, the, const, the, the seeking of just pleasure for pleasure's sake, uh, materialism, just the mounting up of stuff for our own benefit and security, and narcissism, making ourselves the center of our lives and the center of our universe. Man, if those aren't the three things driving us in our world today, I don't know what is. 
And, and God was aware that they were moving into this land that he's going to give them, and the hedonism and materialism and narcissism and idolatry was, was what defined them all. And he dis- and we're going to see this throughout Judges. There's a word in Hebrew which is harem, which is a word of means to to uh, totally devote something to the Lord by complete destruction or annihilation. And it's a word and a practice that it, that of, uh, is an affront to our modern day sensibilities. But we need to understand that the that the that the judgment that God is bringing on the Canaanites through Israel was not just in that moment, but it had been building up for years. Let me look quickly over at Leviticus chapter 18. Um, It talks, and I won't read the whole chapter, but it says, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, um, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived or where you came from, and you shall not do as you do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. And um, and then it goes on for a whole chapter to list all these vile things that the people were doing hundreds of years before the Book of Judges. They were they were involved in all kinds of sexual immorality, incest, bestiality, uh, to name just a few. They were sacrificing their own children murdering their own children to to honor their pagan gods. And um, and this idea of going into a city and completely devoting it to the Lord, killing everything that breathed, was in effect trying to wipe out the, the cancer of that. They were so far gone. And then in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 tells us another aspect of their this this is titled their abominable practices of the the Canaanites that were in the land when you come into the land the Lord your God is giving you you shall not learn the thought to follow the abominable practices of those nations there sh- there shall not be found among you anyone who burns or his son or daughter in an offering anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a meteor, or a necromancer, or anyone who inquires of the dead. These were all man-made ways of trying to manipulate the spiritual world to our own benefit without relying on God and submitting to him. And God recognized that if the Israelites went into these this land and they allowed any of that around them, that they would be infected by it and drawn to it. And we will see that that's exactly what happened. So, so there's this um, this problem of disobedience and the command of God to deal ruthlessly with sin and wickedness and idolatry and all any way that we would compromise. But then the passage closes, or, or a couple different places in our passage, we see the power of faithful courage. At verse 11, verses 11 through 17 says this, it says, From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. This is in more in southern Israel. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Shepher. And Caleb, I don't know if you remember Caleb from earlier in Joshua, he was one of the only men when they first got to the land, when everybody else was afraid, he said, No, we can do it. Who cares if there's giants in the land? We can do it. Um, he's still alive and he gets to go in. And Caleb said, He who attacks this, this city and captures it, I will give him... Aksa, my daughter, for a wife, and Othniel, son of Kinez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave Aksa his daughter for a wife. 
Othniel, who Othniel and Caleb aren't even Jews. They are they are the the descendants of Moses' father-in-law that have just sort of been grafted into the Jewish people and are going in with them. And what we see is the first person that really goes out and does something brave and courageous is Othniel. He's not even a Jew by birth. And he goes in, and and for the love of this woman, he says, and and faithfulness to God, he goes in and he does the job the right way. And... um, and God gives him uh, God gives him the, the city, and Caleb gives him his wife. And uh, we see story we see stories all through the Bible of people who had great faith. They trusted God, they obeyed God, and they did great things for God. If we go back to the book of Joshua in the beginning, when Joshua is just following up after the death of Moses, God says to Joshua, "Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them." Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do uh, to be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success for wherever wherever you go. God is calling us to faithfulness, to uh, to to trust Him and to obey Him, um, and to be able to by doing that to enter in. To his purposes and his promises, but as we will, we know in our own lives, and we'll see in the book of Judges, none of us does that perfectly. Uh, we have all compromised at places in our lives. We've all allowed chaos to reign at some level in our lives, and so it's so important that we see uh, throughout this that the that the ultimate hero of faith is Jesus himself. He is finally the true and just judge that fully and finally delivers us from ourselves because he is the one that completely trusts God, his Father, and completely obeys his commands. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus stands up among them looking as a, like a slain lamb, and it says, They sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Think about this. So I talked about this Hebrew word harem, which is the total devotion and destruction of God's enemies, or, or whatever it is, uh, something destroyed, completely devoted to God. And it, and it rubs us the wrong way as we read about it in the book of Judges and other Old Testament passages. But when it comes down to it, in the, when we get to the New Testament and we see the life of Jesus, we discover that ultimately God allows himself to be completely and fully devoted, uh, to be destroyed so that we might be saved. Jesus Christ gave himself fully and completely. He sought God. He listened to God. He was faithful to his Father. He was God in the flesh. And we can have complete confidence in him. And we can learn from him to learn to follow him so that we learn to listen to his words. We learn to trust him. We learn to live the way he's called us to live, to seek his will, to seek him and his kingdom first and foremost. 